Bannon. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. Hello, hello, hello. Cockle doodle do. It's time for round two. What's going on, everyone? This is Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film and talks about the writing, creation, and culinary process. I'm your host, Monis Rose, and today's restaurant is one of the most, if not the most important restaurants we have ever reviewed on the Restaurant Fiction Podcast. It's called the Midnight Diner, and it resides in Shinjuku, Japan. We are saying such high praise because the Midnight Diner is a safe haven that welcomes all, especially during these times that we are in. And when all that eat there, no matter their age, race, occupation, gender, sexual identification, orientation, they all get along and share the ultimate, yes, the ultimate commonality amongst human beings, that everyone loves to eat good fucking food. And that's the power of the Midnight Diner. All right, so who did we bring as our guest today? Sunoko Sakai. Who is this badass, you ask? Well, she's a former film buyer and producer, turned cook, cooking teacher, and lecturer. She's written in national and international periodicals, including the LA Times and Savour. I believe that's how you pronounce it, Savour. Savour, it's like fur, save, Savour. And she's published one of my favorite cookbooks, Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. Though she might not consider herself a master of Japanese cooking, when I research any recipe dealing with the art of Japanese cooking more times than not, Sonoko is the first person I go to for guidance. A word to the wise before we start this episode. This was recorded off of a Skype call during our pandemic quarantine time, so the audio might get a little wonky here and there. Brace yourselves. It's going to be an awesome ride. All right. So anyway. Without any further ado, here is our review of The Midnight Diner and our interview with Sunoko Sakai. Go. You know, there are places where one seeks salvation when they are in troubled times. Some people, they find the spiritual, like in God. Some people go out in nature. They go to Yosemite. They go to the Grand Canyon. For us at Restaurant Fiction... We find salvation in a bowl of soba noodles with a bit of indashi inside Shinjuku's Midnight Diner. Now, Shinjuku is in Tokyo, and it is really a big city within a bigger city with the brightest of lights on Earth. It is about 10 times the sensory overload than you would find in Las Vegas. I'm talking about Don Quixote pharmacies, LCD billboards, bars upon bars, uh, vice for every tourist and every local in your face all the time. It's a lot of cheap for thrills is what we're saying. 
you know, if you want the quiet or if you really want the deep development work, we actually recommend going into a back alley, into a 12-seat Izakiah tucked kind of circa, you know, near Shinjuku, but just offset from the big bright lights. When you walk in, the first thing you do is you shut up and then you bow your head to the head chef, a.k.a. the master. It's out of respect, plus it's out that you trust his experience. You sit down next to who's who if you want a conversation. And the who's who could be anyone from prostitutes, Yakuza, corporate salarymen, the young, the old, etc. If you want just someone to listen to you, then the master is there from midnight to seven. And if you're looking for answers and you don't get one from him, well, just tilt your head down, smell the fragrant flavors, the ingredients, the garnishes intricately placed in just the right places so that every bite gives you a whirlwind of those five flavors, the sweet, the sour, the bitter, the salty, the umami. Every spoonful and every slurp actually might not give you the answer that you have come to the Midnight Diner for, but guess what? Your soul is fed and you have the fuel to keep on going. So, Sonoko, what did you think of that review of Midnight Diner, one of your favorite fictional restaurants? What do you have to add? Now, you call it izakaya. If you say izakaya, it's, izakaya is a little bit louder, louder, rowdier. The food may not be as important. It would be more about the drinking. This place expresses a different nuance. It's more of a shokudo. And when it's a shogudo, it's not just about drinking. See, izakaya is really about drinking, whereas his place is where people who work late at night come, and they also expect to be fed something decent. The food is just as important to these people and to the master. His menu is limited, but people are counting on that. People are expecting to be fed. Did they get the shokudo right? Because that place is so small and opened at strange hours, there's a lot of places where we say, Ichigen-san kotowari, if you're like a first-timer, they really don't want you there. I think it's like through word of mouth that people come to that place. It's not just for someone to just walk in. Would I even be refused business if I just go without knowing anyone on a first visit? Yeah, if it becomes like a touristy place, people wouldn't want it. Other people, the, we call it the Joden, the regulars, would not like it because it gets crowdy. You have, you'll have a line outside and the whole purpose of having almost a private place in a bar violated by having a lot of tourists there. So it's tricky. But if it's, you know, you're coming, you're invited by someone who goes there on a regular basis, then the master is fine because he's that person is introducing this outsider, Gaijin, to the master, and it's okay. And of all of the dishes that the master has cooked, which one is your particular favorite? The opening sequence is you see him sauteing some meat, and then he puts in the root vegetables. He always does that one dish. I think what it is, and I try to guess it, and I even was discussing it with some of my 
followers on Instagram. It is a soup called tonjiru, and it has some pork in it. It's, a, it's dashi-based. Yet I have never seen him really serve that one dish. It's a very common food that is served along with like curry, this soup. It's very familiar, which I like. And people kind of want that familiarity. So it's always there for you if you want it. And what about the uh, Midnight Diner resonates with you? I just like the master. He's cute. (laughs) (laughs) He's cute. He's stoic. He's kind. And you know he has a dark past. You don't even know his name. He has that scar across his eyelid. Have you noticed that? It's a vertical scar. It looks like a Yakuza scar. So maybe he was in some kind of fight. He works in Shinjuku. And I have a feeling it's near the Kabukicho area, which is kind of seedy. And that's why you get people that work, you know, the nudist clubs. You get colorful group of people that dine there at such an odd hour, which is midnight to seven. He's not your common chef. He's elected to serve these people at a very irregular hours. He does it all on his own. He's kind of a loner. And he's also serious about what he's serving. It may not be fancy food, but he tries to do his best. He's the kind of person that will go and visit you in the hospital if you're sick. He seems to step out of his way to help people, and that's what makes him very human and warm. It is not your usual scripted television show, and it's just very subdued. It's very meditative. There's almost this noir look to it. It's like a sexiness. Oh, there's amazing sexiness to it. Some of the slice of life that you see could get like (laughs) sometimes dangerous, sometimes intimate. Even though you don't really get a full story of these people, I say, okay, these are vignettes. It's okay. Even though you want to meet these people again and again, in our life, it, there's a lot of parallels. Even though we don't go to the midnight diner, we, we have encounters or exchanges with people. You know, you go to the dry cleaners and you get to know the owner and you have similar exchanges, even though it's not food that they're serving. You know, they're talking about the laundry or other customers. And there's life, interesting slices of life everywhere. And that's all compacted in this series. With every recipe you either create or you test, how important is the story behind it? Everything, starting from the ingredient, the structure, the rhythm, the smell. It has to awaken your senses. That's what good storytelling is about. I always find parallels in being a story hunter and a cook. A cook is always looking, and 99% is looking for good ingredients. If you start with a bad ingredient, it's going to make a kind of a mediocre food. Same with the story. And when I was a buyer, I was a buyer before I became a producer. I was always looking for that ingredient. There is no recipe that's going to tell you, okay, I think this is going to be a really good dish or a really good movie. What kinds of stories stick with you? The way I worked in the film business, every film festival, every market, It's basically a gathering of film buyers and sellers, and I was the buyer. I'm always looking for the next big story, which may not even happen in two, you know, it may take two years for that story to really come to fruition because it's just packaging. There is no single formula, but you try to narrow it down and you try to 
to see what these people have done in the past, whether it's a director or the writer, or whether it's the author that wrote the original story. If it's a play, I would want to see the play and then see how it's adapted into a script. So there's a lot of homework that is done, but in the end, it's your gut instinct because you're kind of betting on the recipe to work. And sometimes the recipes don't work. I mean, in fact, if you look at movies, a lot of them flop. Movies are really hard to produce. It's just, I think it's magic when it works. With writing, voice is important. So how did you find your voice? <laughs> it's taken me years. I was still very uncomfortable writing the last book. And I got pretty ambitious. And it's a much thicker book than I thought. I went way over my contractual limit. But if you have something to say, you say it. And for me, it's not just about recipes. I am actually not interested in the recipe as much as I am in the story. And I want to tell the story. And if I want to do that, I have to tell the story right and I have to do the recipe right. You know, they go together. Your voice comes out when you know what you're doing. If you have no idea what you're doing, you're just speaking in somebody else's language. Writing your next cookbook or your cooking and you have a creative block, what are your ways of overcoming that? I eat. <laughs> I cook. It's easy. I sometimes say, oh, God, I don't know what to do. Okay, let me just make that recipe again, or let's, let me cook something, or you know, just go for a walk, or go into the garden. I do other things. I just don't sit around. Sometimes a block is good because a block gives you time to reflect. Some of the dishes that the master cooks, they bring them back to either their childhood or a happier time in their life. Yeah. What's that dish that brings you back to a place of bliss? It's the umeboshi, the pickled plum. And that episode of the pickled plum and the plum wine, umeshu, is actually quite beautiful. The greengrocer who comes to the diner brings his mother's plum wine and the umeboshi, that's right. And he's complaining that his mother has passed away and he's been eating this umeboshi to remember his mother. And he's just down to the last umeboshi. And he's been having some like nightmarish dreams and his mother is coming out as a ghost. And so the story kind of <laughs> unfolds because he is so nostalgic. And he misses his mother. My grandmother made umeboshi every year. And she had this very old plum tree. And every, every right now, this is actually May is the time. May, June is the time when you make these pickled plums. It's called plum, but it's actually a type of apricot that you pick while they are green. They're not sweet. And then you pickle them. And they become this very sour, mouth-puckering pickle that is very nourishing for you. And I have such good memories of that. I continue to make it here in the United States because in California, you could get those plums. I even have that particular ume tree. I planted it a few years ago, and it's starting to give me some fruit. And I talked to the farmer that grows them in Fresno, and we have a plum dialogue because I want to see how the plums are ripening. And so, and I also teach the class so that other people make it. In your latest cookbook, Japanese Home Cooking, you compare Japanese cooking to an orchestra. You even say the result is a symphony. Let's just say your simple noodle soup with egg and shiitake mushrooms is a concerto. What would be 
fried tokiyaki compared to? Well, that could be a symphony too. Why not? It's just a different one. It's more of a street food. It could be someone playing the banjo in the streets. It's a different kind of music. Everybody has their own way of playing music. So it doesn't have to have a lot of players. It could just be one person, one instrument. But even takoyaki could be very complicated. It has flour, eggs. It has the octopus. It has the different vegetables, the red ginger, and it has to have a good sauce and it has to be cooked in a certain way so they're perfectly toasty and round and served hot with the tare. It has to have that street feeling at a festival. It's quite an art. That in itself is like playing music. Give me the Sunoco food tour in Japan. Where are we going in Tokyo? I like to go downtown and take the subway and get off near the sumo wrestling area. And there is a really good soba restaurant where actually I studied with the master there and have his, his 100% buckwheat soba. What is that called? Hosokawa, H-O-S-O-K-A-W-A, Hosokawa. It's only 25 seaters, but he only allows about 20 people in. And sometimes he's not open, <laughs> cash only. And it's in the back street. You can't really find it. Um, you have to Google it first. But he's been reviewed in the Japan Times, and he's a Michelin star noodle maker. So you, you will find him, but it's kind of hidden. How does one perfect the slurp? You see, with eating this dish you're describing, but any really noodled Japanese noodle dish, even you have said in many videos, it is okay to slurp the noodles, you know, make some sounds, really enjoy it. I am still trying to perfect it. I'm, I still get a little self-conscious about making that noise because it's like you're just sucking the noodles up, you know, into your mouth, you know, using the chopsticks as a guide. What you do is you don't leave the bowl on the table. You have to take the bowl of noodles and bring it up to your, closer to your mouth. It's the timing is kind of important because you want the noodles to still be hot, but you go and you slurp it up and hopefully you don't burn. So you don't shove a lot of noodles into your mouth, but you take a few strands and you slurp it and you almost don't even bite it. You might chew the first one just for, for flavor, but a lot of it is like the sensation that you feel as the long noodle is just traveling down your throat. Thank you, Sunoko. Us at Restaurant Fiction appreciate you, your time for coming on, and all that you do. If you want to know more about Sunoko, check out and buy her latest cookbook, Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. If you want to read more of her articles, watch her videos, and sign up for a future cooking class or lecture, go to her website, sonokosakai.com. That's spelled S-O-N-O-K-O-S-A-K-A-I.com. If you want to know more about The Midnight Diner, check out the first two seasons on Netflix in the U.S. and other seasons on Netflix Japan. Get an Express VPN and watch them all. As for us at Restaurant Fiction, listen to as many episodes as your heart desires. And if you're so kind, leave us an awesome review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Monis Rose, and until next time, keep it real, keep it fresh, and always keep it on the flip side. Cut to. 
Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night.